Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm Stacey Topper, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Valentine, New York Times best-selling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. So, Stacy, we have a very special guest this week. I'm so excited to have this special guest, mostly because I enjoy listening to accents, but also because <laughs> it's going to be a fun show. <laughs> it really is like whenever we can get somebody with like a really good accent on the show, those are our favorite shows. It's pretty much it's pretty much it. <laughs> So uh, we are talking with Cindy O'Meara today. Um, Cindy O'Meara um, is from Changing Habits, changinghabits.com.au, which is an amazing company that is starting to get some really great um, product, like just really nutrient-focused products on the market. Like my favorite, uh, Cindy, is the Himalayan pink salt with seaweed flakes in it. Like that to me is like genius and amazing. Um, but also the creator of a new amazing documentary called What's With Wheat that um, I am personally extremely excited about, not just because I'm in it, uh, but because it's an amazing documentary and um, something that I've been talking about a lot online, like probably people are sick of hearing me say about it, but the thing I love about it is that um, for me, I think it's like this new entry into um, better awareness about food and and better food choices as sort of a stepping stone towards a shade of paleo, which of course we've been talking about lately on this show. Um, so I'm super excited, Cindy, to have you on the show uh, for both your accent and your knowledge and your experience. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And, and we in Australia think that you Americans all have accents. So <laughs> I'm I'm Canadian. So I know, know you're Canadian. Yeah, know. I know you're Although, Canadian. I do have this like. <laughs> Stacey, would you agree that my my Canadian accent has watered down pretty substantially over my last 10 years living in America? Mostly, yes. But I would agree that the technicality here is that you've got three women representing three different accents from three different countries. I'll try and talk more Canadian, eh? I'll just, uh, I'll I'll, I'll find it all right now, eh? Um, Oh, I'm sorry, Canada. I did not just mean to make fun of our national awesome accents, eh? I totally made fun of it. I'm a I'm a horrible human being. Um, so um, so Cindy, I one of the things that you sent me when you were um, sort of recruiting people to interview for What's with Wheat was uh, a video that you did that shared your family story and why you were inspired to do this documentary. And one of the things that surprised me when I actually finally got to watch What's With Wheat is that your your family story was not in the documentary a whole lot. Like it was sort of, you kind of touched upon it, but I was like, I felt like I, I knew so much more detail about your your motivation and your your personal 
um, vestment into this topic from that. And I would love if you would, you know, I'm, I'm sure Stacy doesn't know the story, and I know our listeners don't. I would love it if you would share sort of like how your health journey culminated in this documentary and why it inspired you to tackle wheat specifically. Oh, wow. Thank you for asking me that, Sarah, because I did want to put more of the family story in the What's With Wheat, but um, with editors and, you know, people consulting um, with me, we decided to just make it a very small part of it. So my family's from Iowa, USA, or my mum's side's from Iowa, USA, and my mum's the oldest of 11. My grandfather was a corn farmer, but didn't believe in the chemical revolution. And my dad was a Kiwi who moved to uh, Iowa to do chiropractic and through a mutual friend, my mum and my my dad met. Now, the unusual part of my story, um, you know, the fact that um, mum was from Iowa, she had seven brothers and six of them had hemophilia. So hemophilia is a, a a genetic disorder where um, they bleed to death. They they didn't have factor eight, and uh, I guess we're the largest hemophiliac family in the world. There's no hemophilia in the family generations before that. And when I started to learn about the chemical revolution and about nutrition and about what agriculture was doing, I had this feeling that. Um, perhaps it was the use of arsenic and lead on the fields to get rid of the um, locust plague back in the 1930s that may have caused some sort of genetic um, predisposition to happen to my grandmother in order for us to have this happen. But beyond that, um, we have had so many, um, so much death in our family. So my mum, um, is, has passed away from mesothelioma. My sister passed away from Crest, um, which is an autoimmune disease. She was diagnosed at 25. She was always a sick child. She was born in Iowa, USA. She's the the oldest. I just feel that, and, th- and this is me saying this, is I have no proof, but I feel that the chemicals um, that my mum collected while being on the corn farm um, and being sprayed in Iowa then collected in her fat cells, which then were dumped onto her oldest, you know, when she was born. Then my mum and my, my dad came to Australia, and that's when my brother and I were born. And it's it's interesting that my dad and my brother and I, we've had no health issues. We're actually, you know, to speak of like those two had. Um, and they're both passed, as I said. And, my, and I look at my aunts. No one has survived in that generation past the age of 70. So I have three in that generation of my mums, of the 11, that are still alive. Um, and both of the two women have health problems, but my my uncle is still okay, the one uncle that didn't have hemophilia. And I think it was that that bolstered me on to want to know, well, how can I be the healthiest version of myself? And then I turned uh, late 40s, I was getting into that um, and I started to put on weight, get aches and pains, bad backs or hip, anxiety, um, dry skin, everything. I was, I was like breaking up, cracking up. And I thought, don't tell me that this is what 50 is all about. I don't oh, no. believe. <laughs> no, don't tell me this is what it's about. So I went on an elimination diet and um, all I did was eat lean meat and vegetables and a few winter fruits. That was it for three weeks. And in three weeks, I lost nine kilos 
I lost all my aches and pains. My sore hip that I thought I would have to have a hip replacement because I was in so much pain with it just disappeared. Anxiety disappeared. Clarity of mind. I felt the best I'd ever felt in um, in probably a decade, but I didn't realise it had been a slow slide. And then I started to introduce the foods back into my diet and I realised that the one food that was giving me Harry Carry <laughs> was wheat. Now, I had come to university in the US. I'd gone to the University of Colorado. Um, I did anthropology, cultures and traditions, and I knew that wheat had been a part of the diet um, in the Northern Hemisphere for quite some time and in the Southern Hemisphere that the Aboriginals had been eating grain for thousands of years, even before the Northern Hemisphere. So they'd been eating it up to 40,000 years is the belief um, that we're now seeing. So I went, well, why would I be having a problem with wheat? I've eaten well all my life. I've never had a problem. We don't have celiac in the family and so on and so on. And I, I went on this discovery and I read Sarah's book. Um, I read, I, I listened to Dr. Tom O'Brien, Alicia Fasano, Dr. Perlmutter, uh, I, Denise Minga. I just was thirsty for knowledge about, well, okay, if no one's talking about it in Australia, is everyone, anyone talking about it in the US? And I just was um, reading and, and over a couple of years just went, okay, I see what's happened. And, and then my husband said, why don't you do a documentary on it? You know, you've written books. Why not now do a documentary? And so that's when we went, all right, let's do it. And, and Sarah, you saw the video that said my story and this is what I want to do. And, and um, I knew a lot of the information, but even talking to you on a one-on-one -on -one basis and interviewing you and asking you the questions and all the other people that I interviewed, I learned so much more. And um, so the documentary curved its own way. Even though the questions were in place, the history was in place, we knew what we wanted to do, it curved its own way and created its own life. And I have to say that I'm blown away by the hundreds and hundreds of, or oh, actually we're at thousands now, of emails and that we have been getting on, on people wanting to know more and wanting to um, make a change and saying, oh, my gosh, everything that you said has resonated with me. For 20 years I've been dealing with this and no one has said to me that I should be giving up, you know, wheat or giving up a food as opposed to here, take this drug, you'll feel better. So that I guess that's the, the story that um, – unfolded as to me wanting to create this documentary and get there that was, information out. When you shared that story with me, I mean, it was aspects of that story that were so similar to my family's story and the, you know, the, the health issues in my family are not as life threatening as what's been in yours, but they're still very prevalent and we see the same types of things, but we have this family that just, um, you know, for as long as I can remember, would sort of dismiss everything as normal. So, um, yeah, you know, everyone in our family is either constipated all the time or has diarrhea all the time. Ha ha. That's just the way mm. our family is. Right. And and we would have these. It became part of the family culture being being sick and and accepting it and accepting, um, you know, I used to. I used to say things like, thank goodness for modern medicine, I'd be dead 200 times. You know, I guess I just don't have the survival of the fittest genes. You know, like I would just, you know, hey, I, I would 
you know, I would say things like this. We'd be able to look back at our family from the invention of antibiotics on and, and say, well, here's all the family members who would not be alive. Meanwhile, when you start flipping that the other way and you go, well, from the, you know, erosion of the, you know, standard American diet on, here's how many times modern medicine has come, had to come to the rescue. Um, but it was such a part of my, my own health journey to understand what it felt like to be healthy and the role that food and lifestyle choices has in that. And it's one of the things that you covered so well in What's With Wheat because it, it while it focuses on you know, the changes in wheat and also the sort of broader diet changes and, and the influence of pesticides over the last hundred years, you're, you end, right? The last 10 or 15 minutes is what are healthier choices, right? Though so if you're not going to eat wheat, what are you going to eat? And I, I love that it ends on this positive note of, hey, look, you know, quality meats and vegetables and fruit are like great choices and they have lots of nutrition for your body and it's not that hard. And you've got, you know, people like, you know, Pete Evans saying, you just cook delicious food. <laughs> just go buy it yourself and just cook it in your own house. And that's all you've got to do. And I love that it was able to, um, I don't know, it's not really sneak in this additional mes- message of, um, for me, it's like the nutrient-focused message, right? It's the whole foods message and the organic foods message and the eat local and the eat seasonal. It kind of all sort of snuck in there at the end, but in a way that made complete sense with the overall narrative and ended up being like, look, you know, we can just take a step backwards in time towards these better choices without being um, uh, dogmatic about it, which I thought was was really powerful. So I feel like... It's a documentary that's going to really resonate with paleo. It's going to really resonate with, you know, primal ancestral, right? perfect health diet, that the whole family. But it's going to really resonate, I think, in many ways with uh, plant-based diet um, people and uh, just grain-free, right? Sort of the um, uh, William Davis and, and uh, Perlmutter sort of school of thought. And I think it's it it crosses, it, more, it transcends these different approaches to um, optimal human diet in a way that it feels like everybody can come together and agree on this one issue. And it explained it so well. And I just feel like it's going to be, um, it's going to be one of those eye opening documentaries for people kind of the way, um, you know, there's been other documentaries that have been super influential, like fat, sick, and nearly dead, got people juicing, right? This is going to be, this is going to be like that for people going wheat free, at least as a stepping stone. Mm. Oh, thank you. I hope it does. And and just so everybody knows, fat, sick, and nearly dead was done by an Australian too from Sydney. (laughs) (laughs) Who also came to America and interviewed people in America. Exactly. Exactly. that's it's so right. It was like, who do I find here in Australia? Because no one, I didn't find anybody talking about this here in Australia. But I did find that beautiful medical doctor in Christchurch, New Zealand, Dr. Rodney Ford. He, um, you know, he was just amazing. I loved him during the documentary, by the way. I was like, who is this guy? I love everything he says. He is so on point. Yeah, he he was. And he's been known, you know, he's been doing this for 30 years. It's not something that 
he's just come up with and, and started to do. And he, he's known as the gluten doctor. I'm not sure why because he takes everybody off wheat, but <laughs> he, he explained things so amazingly. And, like, what we do have in the um, – if you purchase the DVD, we actually have all the extended um, interviews because what I – did was 24 hours of filming and I had to cut that down to an hour and a bit. And so there was all this amazing information from every single one of you that I said, I don't want this to sit on a cutting room floor. I want people to see it. So we have reduced each of the interviews down to the succinct parts where you can't hear me asking the questions. We just put the question up on. And and it's just, um, you know, because I find when I watch a documentary, I really like somebody in that documentary and I want to know more about them and I want to learn more about them. So we made that available for people so that they could, if they love you, Sarah, and they want to know more about what you're saying, they can actually go and watch this wonderful extended interview on you or if they love to say a jai because I tell you what, you know, say a jai just, um, he just, he's like a filing cabinet full of information and it looks like he's tracking through his filing ta- cabinet as you're as you're asking him the question, and then he pulls it out and he just spills this information oh. out. So look, it was interesting his, with everybody. His vocabulary, I was like, he just needs to drop the mic now. Like it's just like he just kind of felt like every time he said something, like and drop the mic. Like it was just he, he was he was the the uh, punctuation. Um, mm. Phenomenal. Um, I I loved that. For me, the inter- the documentary itself was also like a, you know, here's my my documentary faves. You know, like the people that I love, everything they're in, and then it, it introduced me to new experts that I um, feel like I have a lot of synergy with. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. It made me feel like I I got to expand my my bubble a little bit and. Um, and just personally for me, that was wonderful. Did you ask – so there's 14 experts? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, yep, 14. Did you, did you ask all 14 of us the same series of questions? Yes, exactly that, the same questions. That's, um, that's amazing to me to think that you know, we all had the same series of questions, and yet to me I felt like – you know what I can. And granted, it was over a year ago that we we did our interview. But I was watching the documentary and trying to recall the series of questions, and was like, "This is really interesting." That the narrative kind of ended up in a different direction than I would have anticipated, just based on you know our conversation in a hotel room in Austin, Texas. <laughs> um, but but I I loved it because I felt like. It felt so. I mean, as I mean, I I clearly have a very strong bias against wheat, right? Like I mm-hmm. I have some very strong opinions about whether or not wheat should be classified as a food, um, and and but I felt like, you know, the the documentary itself was so balanced and uh, like more balanced than if I was just talking about wheat. If I was just talking about wheat, it would be very biased. Um, I would I'd fully admit to it being biased. <laughs> yeah, and and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to crucify a food that, um, as Sayajai says, is, is, has got secular meaning in it. And I didn't, you know, and it was something that was a part of our diet for many years, not just wheat but other ones, and it was part of our civilized, you know, us becoming 
uh, to a point where we could stay in one place and we're able to do where we are now, which, you know, you talk about in the interview. Um, so I asked the questions from the beginning, you know, the history right through to now. But what was really interesting is that uh, when I got to Dr. Stephanie Seneff in, in Boston, and she was the last one that I interviewed in the U.S., uh, we were tired. We had driven through the night. We, you know, we, we arrived there and we're ready to go. And she just explodes with information that my brain is completely blowing its fuse. And everybody else in the interview room is doing the same thing. My, my jaws on the floor. And she comments about a, um, the shikimate pathway. Yeah. And I and I and she says it over and over and over again. And I went, the shikimate what? And she goes, the shikimate pathway. And because it wasn't in my reality until I spoke to her, I hadn't heard that five other people that I interviewed also talked about the shikimate pathway until I went back and read. So I got it all transcribed and I read everything. And I kept going, Vandina talks about the shikimate pathway. Sally talks about the shikimate pathway. Dr. Terry Walls talked about the shikimate pathway. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this obviously is, is an important aspect that I hadn't seen. Yeah. And so you saw that we went on, on that journey about, glyphosate and the, and the shikimate pathway and, and everything that it did. So that was what um, I went, came home and I studied like mad about all of the issues that um, had come up in that last interview. And then um, it was so funny that then it was everybody was talking about it, but because it wasn't in my reality. And I think it's really important that people realise this, is that they will look at this documentary and they will only see what's in their reality. But what they have to do is probably go through it again and again and again and listen to you do your extended interview as well as Stephanie Seneff and everybody else because sometimes we just have these blinkers on. And what I wanted to do was take people's blinkers off and make them aware and educate them about um, what is actually really happening out there. Stop being you know, having the wool pulled over your eyes with propaganda and really start to become aware and alert about um, where our life is is, lead, is being led to and you're not the leader, you're actually having to follow. So I guess that's where that was my real strong point in there is just to say, come on, wake up. It's time that we make a change and we have to do it as individuals because our governments aren't going to change. Those chemical companies are definitely not going to change. They they have it sewn up. You know, Clearfield Wheat, we didn't even talk about. We didn't even talk about GMO. Um, we, there were a lot of things we didn't talk about because we felt that we were going to blow people's minds too much. <laughs> yeah. So what's with wheat part two? Wow, yes. Um, yeah, who knows what I'm going to do. But at this point, uh, we're just um, we're just sitting and watching this, I believe, a really wonderful, intelligently put together, amazing experts. And you're one of them, Sarah. You're a key part of this, um, the way you explain things. And, uh, you know, you, you will see yourself on there many times. 
Um, I just, I and just felt And I will that... fist bump in the air every <laughs> single time is pretty much, I was, I was shocked. So, um, like you probably know your, your staff sent me, um, a link to, to preview the documentary. Um, I think it was like right before I left for Paleo FX this year, which was some nice, a nice bookends to, we filmed while I was at Paleo FX in 2015 and then I got uh, access to the to the finished product a year later. But um, I was so busy getting ready for that conference. And at that conference, I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to look. And I, you know, I because this is the second documentary I've filmed. But I got cut out of the first one that I filmed entirely. Um, and I just my my anticipation was when I I knew the other people you were talking to. My anticipation from a uh, constantly underestimating myself, I guess, um, was that, you know, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be in this for like 30 seconds. And then I was like, oh, I'm something like fourth build on this documentary. This is amazing. <laughs> I just from a, a personal, like, um, you know, for me there, there's, cause I'm, I, I think I was telling you this before Cindy, that I'm, I've always been a, a documentary junkie. I really enjoy documentaries. And even when I don't necessarily enjoy with all the messaging, it's uh, an art form that I um, I really I really love and I really engage in and I'm, I'm interested in how they're made and I, I interesting what I'm interested in what makes a documentary an effective messaging tool. So I just I geek out. So when my husband goes out of town, I typically you know go on to Amazon Prime or Netflix and I find like what's it, what documentary is free for me to stream online tonight that I I haven't watched and that's typically what I do when he's out of town. He's, he's not as into documentaries as I am. And um, so for me personally to see myself on screen, thank you for making me sound smart. That was awesome. <laughs> you are smart. <laughs> I think you could have easily used footage that did not sound so smart. Um, but uh, for me, there was this um, – a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment having contributed mm. to such an amazing, um, an amazing messaging tool and, um, and something that, you know, it's, it's a medium that I've always loved. So it has a very similar sense of accomplishment for me as seeing a book that I wrote on a bookshelf in a bookstore. Uh, it was mm. a very similar type of like, wow, who, who knew this is what I was going to do with my life. This is pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> So thank you for not cutting me out of your documentary. I really appreciate that. Well, you know what? We didn't cut anybody out. Everybody had powerful messages. Everybody was key to it. And the way I chose each of the people was that they were had a speciality. Even though they knew the answers to everything, they were specialists in one question that I asked. So, you know, like for Joel Salatin, he's a farmer. So I asked him about you know, all the stuff with farming. Vandana Shiva, she's an activist and she's from India where the Green Revolution started, which was the beginning of um, Triticum Estevan and the monocultures of wheat. So, and for you, you were somebody who had had been through autoimmune diseases, had come out the other side and, you know, you had that um, information as did Dr. Terry Walls. So every single one of you I picked for your speciality. So I wanted um, William Davies in it and I sent him the same video as I, I sent you and very politely a couple of days later he said, look, it looks great but I'm doing another documentary on wheat and 
I think I've seen it. I've, I've, I think I've actually seen it, and it was a inside out, um, and it goes for about forty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did see that one, but it it had nothing. It it actually was questioning whether he was right, you know, which I thought, oh, I would have presented that better because I wanted him to speak about Clearfield wheat. Uh, and so it was like it was like this. I just what everybody everybody had a speciality. So it was either guts or um, their, their history, like say a dry and his history was was phenomenal. So um, Rodney Ford and working with children for 30 years and, and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which, you know, I'm still getting people coming to me and saying, show me the proof that non-celiac gluten sensitivity even exists. And so I, I send off a whole bunch of Dr. Fasano's work. Um, so, you know, it's like um, they're still not willing to believe that celiac disease is is the only is not the only thing that we are affected by um, gluten Spain, uh, or wheat. Very compelling mm. scientific evidence to the contrary. Uh, yeah. And I know, and you are the researcher of researchers. And so, uh, you know, I, I just kind of look at people and I go, all right, well, if you don't want to believe it, then go on your own way and do your own thing. But here's the evidence. Here's the information. Do with it what you want, because I'm about giving information. I can't change anybody. I, I'm, I'm the I just want to give the education. So one of the things that we do here at Changing Habits, um, which is my company, um, is that we have a 12-month education program that is um, that is I I put out for the layperson as well as the professional. Like I have a lot of I have medical doctors, chiropractors, dieticians, um, osteopaths, uh, psychologists, pharmacists, all doing this course because they're realizing that education to the masses is going to be needed because our medical system, well, in Australia, I don't know what it's like in the US, but even our health minister, our national health minister said they are poorly lacking in their environmental medicine and in their nutritional medicine and things have to change. So I've created an education program that's poised to help these guys get, you know, their skills up basically. I think the average for um, American medical training is three hours of nutrition throughout their entire medical degree. I think that was the statistic I saw. So it varies. It varies from from Mm. institution to institution. But um, I think three hours is the average, which is ridiculous. I mean, and then they advise, and then they advise them to go on margarine. You know, oh, you've got high cholesterol, go on margarine. And I went, well, how much nutrition has your doctor had that he can say, here, take this stat and go on margarine? Oh, no, you don't have celiac disease, therefore wheat's not a problem. But you know that every time you eat wheat, it it upsets you. Um, no, you don't have an allergy to that. You can continue with that. No, you shouldn't cut that out because that, that will you'll lose your vitamin Bs. And I like go, all they're doing is going on some meme a viral meme that somebody has said that's not even the truth. Like, you know, we talk about Ansel Keys. That was a viral untruth, a meme that spread throughout the Western world that has been a disaster for our health. So, uh, you know, I, like I'm, I'm a little and, bit... And for I, our trust in science, actually, for that matter. I think a lot of what I... I this is like an entire tangent, um, but one of the things that I have been doing a lot lately is sort of 
just talking about um, sort of a pro-science message in general and talking about how much we have to glean from science, but not necessarily an individual study, rather looking at the body of scientific literature and why that's really important to do to inform our choices. And I think whenever I face sort of general anti-science sentiment, like the example is, we'll look at Ansel Keys. It was like, okay, it's very, very unusual to have a scientist uh, fabricate his data and then have it become like government propaganda. That doesn't happen very often. Let's just, Mm -hmm. let's, let's not let, this one thing that changed the turn of American diet for three decades ruined science. That's just, but I think we're seeing it more and more. Um, I, I think we're seeing that um, there is a, a bias in science and um, it's not just in the food industry, but in the pharmacology, you know, in pharmacology as well, there are, there are some studies out there that, um, are proving to be not right. So look at Prozac, for instance, you know, they've seen that it's not much better than a placebo. So, and whereas before it was seen as the thing that we should be doing. So I I think what I teach in my nutrition course is how do you look at a study and understand what the study's saying and what can you get from it? For instance, I had um, media call me recently. And they said, oh, there's a new study out and and the study says if you don't eat breakfast, you'll lose weight and it's the best thing that you can do. Yet we've been told we should be eating breakfast. So I said, look, send me the study. Let me read it, what you're going on about. And so I looked at the study and it was all about um, three breakfasts or they did four breakfasts, I think. It was um, Fruit Loops, Quaker Oats, uh, maybe it was three, and then none. And each of the participants either had one of the breakfasts, but they always had coffee, milk, and I think an artificial sweetener. So that was that was the basis of it. And as I read through the study, I realised it was financed by uh, Pepsi, who owned Quaker Oats, and they wanted to show how cholesterol would reduce by eating oats but not Fruit Loops or not having breakfast. That was what the study was. And yet the media comes out and goes oh, well, it's all about, you know, you lose weight if you don't <laughs> have breakfast. And so I went on national television and they asked me and I said, well, let's really look at the study and let's really understand what this is about and let's look at who's financed it. So I don't think Ansel Keys is the first and I don't think he's going to be the last. I think that in my, this is my viewpoint, Sarah, I just think we have to be very, very careful with all these um, studies that are coming out, and I think we have to, uh, as um, not only as, as scientists and researchers, but as the general public becomes smarter and more educated, they will begin to understand that just because the heading of a study says something doesn't mean that that's the body of the study. So Would I you agree with me? I, so I think there's three there's three problems. Um, so one is that academic research is grossly underfunded uh, globally, and for example. Um, now in America, eight to eleven percent of of grants are funded for academic research in in institutions, and within that eight to eleven percent, what's getting funded, what there's motivation to fund, is um, what is considered research that um, has a high possibility of monetization. So something that will mm. uh, lend to a patent 
or to a drug discovery or some way of basically bringing money back into the coffers. Um, so uh, it is it is atrocious. I mean, it was you know fifty six years ago, fifty percent of grants were funded. Um, the and what's happened is there's no money, zero money for um, hey, I checked out this other guy's work and. I found the same thing in my lab. There's um, no money for um, null hypothesis studies. So I thought this would happen. Turns out it doesn't. No money for that. And because there's no money, there's also no um, there's no notoriety. So journals won't publish that because it doesn't bring in money to the journal. Um, and so then if you're not publishing and you're not getting grants, you're not advancing your career. So it's forcing... Um, it's forcing more research it's, and forcing more researchers to think in terms of translational research. What, how can my basic science be translated to human application in a way that makes money? And the problem with that is that the advances that we have currently across the board in science, I mean, not just in biology, but in physics and in chemistry, the advances that we have now are based on what was purely theoretical research 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. If you cut funding to purely theoretical, advancing human knowledge type research now across the board in all sciences, you castrate our ability to have technological advances that improve our quality of life in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So science is grossly underfunded. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what happens is it's, I don't like I really think that I mean I I was in academia my husband's an academic um I still have close relationships with with many of my uh, old colleagues um you know I've 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 been in that world and people are not sitting there and making up data they're not misrepresenting data that doesn't mean that they always interpret their data accurately but um but it's not from a um, trying to advance my career, get more money standpoint, it's a really cutthroat, high stress. I mean, it was the stress of my first postdoctoral um, research fellowship that pretty much destroyed my health completely. Um, you know, I was working 80 to 100 hour weeks just just to, you know, stay, you know, stay at, uh, you know, stay on top, right? Just to be able to publish in, in high level, journals and um, and adv- continue to advance my career and it wrecked me and so I think this one problem is that that research is just grossly underfunded and things like things that would be really important just for human knowledge like replication studies or um, null, publishing null hypotheses um, they're undervalued in science and one of the major reasons why they're undervalued is because everybody is fighting for such um, thin funds right now. The other problem is how research has become now a sensationalist headline. So there's this huge problem from the 24-hour news networks in that they're desperate for any kind of headline. And so what happens is studies are getting misrepresented. They're, um, so I often I'll read a headline and I'll read a little, you know, whether it's a press release or an article, I'll go back and read the paper and what the article, you know, what the, the news said 
was not at all what the actual research paper said in terms of yep. their conclusions, right? And that's not the scientists that are doing it. It's the media people. And sometimes it's the university media trying to get, you know, right, you send out a press release for a paper to right, get media coverage because that brings in more private donations to the university, comes down to money. Um, or it's the, you know, bigger media channels just trying to get, you know, viewers and people to click on their sites and they're just trying to, they're just trying to get, again, it's money. It all comes down to money. And mm -hmm. so, um, so there's this huge problem in the way that science is communicated to the public because the, the results of one, one study would never change uh, our, you know, like there can be seminal studies that like, wow, we discovered this great new thing, but generally you're never going to change a choice that you make because of one study. You're going to look at the body of scientific literature as a whole and how that piece fits into this greater picture. And then you're going to make a, a, you know, a, a decision based on this bigger picture. And when the media reports on science, there's and in part because the people reporting on science don't understand it. There's no um, there's no like, you know, here's here's how this information fits into what's already known. Here's what it conflicts with. Here's what it agrees with. Um, here's what we still need to understand. And it requires more than a soundbite. And, and it requires a more detailed conversation. And it's, um, I think that's where empowering the reader and the listener and the, the viewer to think critically and to go back and look at the science and, and be able to make some, um, you know, critical observations about the quality of the science and whether or not, you know, it actually matches the messaging is really important. But I, I think that, the the problems really come down to money and uh, misrepresentation over over since I can't say the word now um, sensationalism sensationalism <laughs> by the media yeah. thank you you know Sarah and I think that's why um, I follow you and people like you and why people follow me is that we cut through all of that we we have a look at what you know, is happening out there. We, and I know with you, when I was reading your Himalayan salt um, article, you know, the whole salt article, you know, it was very balanced and it, it gave some great points. Whereas uh, in the media, you'll hear, don't do that because it's got this in it. And, oh, you should be eating this because it's brilliant. But you did a really balanced view on that. And whenever I get one of your articles, I, I feel you're, you know, you're very balanced. And, that's what I hope to do here in Australia, and I have been doing for 30 years, is that I, I look at it and I, and I look through the lens of philosophy because if we don't have a philosophy, we're going to be, you know, going here, there and everywhere, believing this thing and then the next thing. And I think in the end it's, it's a philosophy um, that guides you in your life, in every area of your life, from eating to parenting to looking at research to to understanding how does that work? Because, uh, for instance, I have a professor who works with me um, who's helped write this um, education program that I did and who helps me research. And we were having a chat and he talked about, you know, saturated fat and insulin resistance and things like that. And I said, well, there must be an evolutionary reason why. And so he went away and, and went back into the literature and came back and he says, oh, my goodness, Cindy, there is an evolutionary reason why saturated fat causes um, this insulin 
insulin resistance, like a slight insulin resistance. And and we, you know, we talked about it and we explained it and then we put it into um, our education program, showing people that just because they say saturated fat is bad and then there's another community saying saturated fat is really good, eat lots and lots and lots of it, there's got to be some sort of reason why it causes that insulin resistance and then we found it and then we went oh my goodness that makes sense so that it was in my philosophy of culture and tradition and vitalism that made me question well why does that do that there must be a reason for it you know so yeah and and i think that's why people follow um bloggers who are researchers and especially who really look into the research you know everything you Right, Sarah. I I really enjoy, um, and I know people in Australia like what I write um, because my audience is mainly um, in Australia. So, um, although I think that's going to change somehow um, I have with a the feeling. documentary, yeah, <laughs> because it's it's just gone wild around the world. Like I've seen in Chile and Romania and Turkey and the US and Canada and South America and oh my gosh, it's just. Yeah, so I think that's going to change. So let's remind um, people where they can find the documentary. Um, it's available. They can uh, rent, you know, pay-per-view or buy it digitally or buy the DVD, and they can get access at whatswithwheat.com. Yeah. And, that, and if, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's where they go. And you can, you can buy it digitally with all the extras um and remember when they're looking at it this is all australian dollars so if you're in the u.s um and you've got the u.s currency you can take 30 percent off that so it makes it really worthwhile for in u.s dollars for being on the american (laughs) side of the currency exchange um yeah, so it's very inexpensive. It's absolutely mm. worth every penny. Whatswithwheat.com. And, of course, people can find out more about you at changinghabits.com.au, right? That's right. Uh, and I just- thank you, Cindy, so much for joining us. And Stacy, who I have totally railroaded this entire podcast. I'm sorry. That's okay. I was – I actually did have a couple of things to, to say and a couple of points, but you guys actually got to them eventually. Um, I wanted to point out some of the um, – experts that you have listed on your website some of our listeners would be familiar with for example uh terry walls who we've had on the show before joel salatin who um we've had on the show before both of whom on the show before both of whom wrote uh, forwards to sarah and i's books um i would say also that um sarah obviously you're familiar with uh we had pete <laughs> evans on the show right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just imagining that and also um, Mark Sisson and Sally Fallon, who we've talked about before also. Um, so it's interesting to me. I, I'm glad that you covered where we could find out more about seeing the show for those of us who haven't yet had an opportunity to do that. Because for me, I'm interested on something like what would Sally's take be on this, given, you know, that's um, I already know as a paleo person, like what my beliefs on wheat are and what kind of yours and Mark's would be, but I know Joel and Sally have a different perspective. So I think it's great that there's, it seems to me, even just from the people I'm already aware of, not to mention, you know, the eight, I think other people on here that I'm not familiar with um, necess- necessarily are going to have a, a variety opinion and a well-rounded kind of approach to um, this. And I would say that 
even if um, you're listening, not just for yourself, but I know that there are a lot of people in my life that aren't necessarily interested in going paleo, but they or someone in their life has um, a wheat intolerance or gluten sensitivity or a celiac. And this seems like a really great resource, especially for someone who might not necessarily read books, to be inspired and find out more to set them on the path to healthy lifestyle um, and will be introduced to a lot of different new concepts in this that they could potentially relate to. And Stacy drops the mic. <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. You know, I I listen to you too, by the way, um, on the podcast. I've um, I have you on my um, podcast icons. So, yeah, I've been listening to what you guys are up to. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, I we're, apologize sorry. For we're sorry. We're <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, for being on. Like I said, I got to just listen to your accents. So um, for those who have listened in on the podcast, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, you can check out the documentary What's With Wheat um, at the website, whatswithwheat.com. And we will be back again soon. Thank you so much for joining us, Cindy. It was great having you. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite Paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. It's fine. She's ready to go. You ready to go? Yonner? Yonner McYon's a lot? Getting it out. <laughs> Stacy's the one who actually records it, and her husband produces the show, so he edits it. Um, and he's the one who does all of the, like, make it go off into the world part. <laughs> and, uh, Matt, that was the technical term, right? Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.